This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, everyone out there, all CHP stalwarts, new listeners, and everyone else who stumbled into me. Laszlo Montgomery here, coming to you once again, talking about Guangzhou. We're going to try and finish things off in this part six of a series where we trace the long timeline of Chinese history and viewed it through the prism of this great and historic city. From Qin Shi Huang's time, 22 and a half centuries before, up until basically when the European merchant seamen started showing up in the South China Seas in greater frequency... The history of Guangzhou was one that had always been dominated by trade and commerce, always living up to its moniker of China's front door, where overseas trade was concerned, but not with Korea and Japan, of course, but everyone else. The events of the Opium Wars transformed Guangzhou beyond its traditional role as a trade entrepot. Following these events that shook the dynasty and the nation like nothing else had ever done before, Guangzhou emerged as a bastion of resistance to the dynasty itself, foreign intervention in Qing dynasty affairs, and later on against the warlords. Chinese officials, military figures, and intellectuals in China realized only too late that their leaders in Beijing had made the most out of missing out on every possible opportunity. And because of all the inward-looking policies and Manchu suspicion of their Han Chinese subjects, at the exact moment when the West was having a great leap forward, China was caught flat-footed and paid for this in terrible ways. Last time we went over the humiliating treaties that institutionalized all those laws and regulations demanded by the foreign powers in China. All these acts committed more than a century and a half ago, today provide limitless jet fuel to power many patriots and nationalists calling for vengeance. The Western powers in Japan, well, they didn't consider the consequences of their actions during the so-called Bainian Guochir, or Century of Humiliation. But then came the Northern Expedition, which put an end to the warlord era that unnecessarily extended Chinese national humiliation an extra couple decades. But this Northern Expedition ended up being replaced with something that, well, in retrospect, wasn't really that much better. And when it was all over, the warlords were still around, but rather than being their own bosses, they tied their skiffs to the new nationalist government led by Jiang Kai-shek. And here's the main thing you could say about Jiang. Not everyone liked him. He had more enemies than just the CCP, and they dogged him till the very end of his days on the Chinese mainland. So let's hover over the city of Guangzhou and see first how this ancient city fared during the so-called Nanjing Decade from 1927 to 1937, when there was so much hope that maybe China might get up, dust itself off, and have a nice national rejuvenation that could lift the country up to the kind of glory and world stature that it had traditionally enjoyed throughout much of the recorded history of the world. Around the time of this post-Northern Expedition period, the most powerful force in Guangzhou and Guangdong province was Chen Jitang. He's been mentioned in previous episodes. During the early years of the Nanjing Decade, 
he ran the show down there and was based in Guangzhou. Chen Jitang came from a Hakka background, born in southern Guangxi, and he signed on with Sun Yat-sen very early on. And despite his association with the warlord faction, Chen was a very respected and revered person by many. During his time in charge of Guangdong province, following the northern expedition, he was responsible for building infrastructure, schools, hospitals, and signing off on projects that had tangible benefits to the people and to business. And the city of Guangzhou was the primary beneficiary of many of these improvements. The Guangdong people called Chen Jitang the Nantian Wang, the Southern Heavenly King. So much was his contribution to that province. Chen Jitang wasn't what you would call a Chiang Kai-shek man. In 1931, he teamed up with the Guangxi clique generals like Bai Chongxi and Li Zongren and broke away from Jiang and began to organize and challenge his Nanjing-based leadership. But then on 9-18-1931, the Mukden incident occurred. Japan gave everyone in China a harbinger of what was going to follow. And following this smash-and-grab event in Manchuria, Jiang was able to rally all military forces to let bygones be bygones and to unite and plan for the defense of the coming Japanese invasion beyond what they had already seized. So this break in the unity of the national government was backburnered, but the enmity between these Guangdong and Guangxi leaders and Jiang, that still remained. Chen Jitang later went on to betray Jiang Kai-shek during his army's participation in the encirclement campaign in 1935, trying for a fifth time to dislodge Mao from his Jiangxi Soviet on Jinggangshan. After some reflection, Chen Jitang had concluded that he couldn't bring himself to trust Jiang and his intentions. So he decided to cut a deal with the communists, and he let Mao know as long as they vacated Jinggangshan entirely, he would offer them safe passage through his territory. And facing possible annihilation from this fifth encirclement campaign, Mao opted to take Chen Jitang up on his offer. And then once Mao and his army were gone, Chen Jitang went in and took over that part of Jiangxi province. And Mao and the communists, safely out of harm's way for the meantime, began their long march to Yan'an. Chen Jitang was very close to another of Jiang's many rivals. This was Hu Hanmin, who was another Hakka from Panyu, which, as we know from part one of this series, was the most ancient part of Guangzhou and where the city's history began. He came from an upper-class background, was a scholar, and highly educated. Like Chen Jitang, Hu Hanmin was also an early supporter of Sun Yat-sen and fought in all of Sun's battles and followed him overseas. He was also a co-founder of the KMT. At first, Hu Hanmin backed Jiang, but they ended up having a nasty split in February 1931. Hu became a leader in the anti-Jiang movement. And just as Sun Yat-sen had done during the Constitutional Protection Movement, Hu Hanmin invited his supporters from around the country, as well as all anti-Jiang forces, to come down to Guangzhou to be part of this new government to challenge Jiang Kai-shek. Hu Hanmin sort of had the same wacky pipe dream as the previous warlord, Chen Jiongming. He had this vision of turning Guangdong and Guangxi into these 
two model provinces that could rival what the Jiangnan and northern regimes of China had been reduced to. In addition to that, after the Mukden incident, many in the military and the government were also lambasting Jiang for being too passive and not taking the fight to Japan. And Hu Hanmin was the loudest voice of them all. But, alas, Hu Hanmin's fate wasn't to have a long life, and he made an early exit from the scene, dying suddenly in May of 1936 at the age of 56. In that year, with Hu Hanmin gone, here is where Chen Jitang, fearing that Jiang would make a move to marginalize him, again split with Jiang and unknowingly led to what was inscribed into the history books as the Liangguang Incident. The Liangguang, again, were the two Guangs, Guangdong and Guangxi. This was Chen Jitang's power base, and he intended to have this southern region of China become the base from which to challenge Jiang and replace him. But again, those factions in China who, under different circumstances, might have allied with Chen Jitang, decided not to plunge the country into an even deeper political crisis on the eve of what was gearing up to be all-out war with Japan. So, in July of 1936, after pulling the trigger on his plans and with no one willing to join his conspiracy, pulled the plug on his plans and resigned his positions. He flew to Hong Kong until he would be called back to serve the country after July of 1937. After the war, Chen Jitang went on to serve as the governor of Hainan until April of 1950 when he gave up the fight and flew to Taiwan. So now we reach the point where the Second Sino-Japanese War breaks out. How did things go down in Guangzhou? There was a peculiar situation down there with the existence of British Hong Kong and Portuguese Macau, with December 1941 still several years in the future. As we know from past CHP episodes, Japan, despite that top-drawer military machine of theirs, they were really only able to control the coastal cities, major rivers, and a few of the major inland cities. The farther from the coast Japan strayed into China, the more vulnerable they were to attack. By blockading all the available ports on the East Coast, the Japanese were attempting to prevent any weapons and supplies from getting into the hands of the Chinese military. Thanks to Chinese-British cooperation, about 80% of everything getting into the country was coming in through Guangzhou and Hong Kong. Japan and Britain weren't at war yet, but they were both eyeing each other malevolently and suspiciously. Japanese intelligence was well aware, neutrality or no neutrality, the British were moving lots of war supplies into Guangdong, to aid Chinese forces. After the Japanese had taken Nanjing in December of 1937, they began planning the Canton Operation. This was a major offensive that would effectively plug all the remaining holes where war material was getting in. Once Guangzhou was successfully blockaded, Japan would have effectively locked down China's ports from Dalian all the way to Guangzhou. They were first thinking of taking Daya Bay right on the border with Hong Kong and using that location as a base to police the entries to the Pearl River Delta. But this early in the months leading up to Pearl Harbor, this location was still too provocative an act. And after failing to come up with an easy way to accomplish their plans to blockade Guangzhou, 
they decided instead in the summer of 1938 to just blast their way into Guangzhou and take control of the whole city by brute force, a tactic they excelled at. They figured once they seized control of Guangzhou, they could use this as their base to police all possible incoming cargo destined for Chiang Kai-shek. The newly operational Hanko Guangzhou Railway was now in service, so anything that was able to be offloaded in Guangzhou could be easily transported up to nationalist bases around Wuhan. Jiang was also receiving some support from the Soviets that was delivered in caravans across the desert in Xinjiang. Stalin wasn't doing this out of any love for Jiang Kai-shek. He just wanted to contribute to making life miserable in China for the Japanese military. October to December 1938, the Japanese, still at their most powerful, used their Air Force, Army, and Navy to achieve their aims. The Chinese Air Force put up as much resistance as they could. I mean, this was an ant fighting an elephant. Flying for the Nationalists were several Chinese-American volunteer pilots. This is perhaps a story for another day, but flying for this team was Portland-born Arthur Chin, the son of a Hoisan Chinese-American immigrant. Arthur Chin and his fellow Chinese-American pilots couldn't stop the regular onslaught of Japanese planes flying their vastly superior aircraft. But Arthur Chin and his fellow pilots, some born in China, some born in the USA, but all sharing Chinese ethnicity, flying these ancient Curtis Hawk IIs and Gloucester Gladiator aircraft, did help in slowing the Japanese down, and Arthur Chin went on to become the first American Air Force ace of World War II, shooting down five enemy planes in the action he saw. Chiang Kai-shek sent eight divisions and four brigades to try and beat the Japanese back and prevent the loss of Guangzhou, and though this aspect of the campaign doesn't get as much ink as the major battles, the Chinese army, throughout the Second Sino-Japanese War, also heavily relied on countless local militia groups. These villagers come soldiers in the time-honored tradition that went back to the Zhou dynasty. Local villagers and townspeople without much fanfare picked up a weapon and resisted the invaders and fought alongside the nationalist troops, trying in vain to hold the line against the Japanese. Part of Jiang's army hunkered down in Hulman, and planned to hold off the Japanese by securing this important entry point into Guangzhou by sea. Four generations had passed since Lin Zexu burned the opium at that very spot, defying a foreign invader. Now, once again, they were amassed at this historic part of Guangzhou to try and hold back another foreign invader. Between August 1937 to October 1938, The Japanese had carried out a number of bombing missions to soften up the area around Guangzhou, wrecking the communications, transport, and crippling their logistics. The Japanese had committed enough naval assets to effectively close off the southern coast to any possible supplies getting through from anyone on a suicide mission trying to outrun the blockade. And Japanese naval vessels were already firing on China-bound junks sailing from Hong Kong. The Chinese put up a noble effort, but their air force was neutralized and would stay that way until 1941. By that time, the American volunteer group Flying Tigers would join hands with the Chinese and 
aid them in shooting down Japanese planes. Japanese anti-aircraft guns were regularly shooting planes out of the sky, originating from Hong Kong, that were suspected of carrying supplies to Chinese forces. And then for two months in May and June in 1938, as they had done elsewhere, terrorizing people on the ground, the Japanese bombed the city of Guangzhou. This was when the slow trickle of residents leaving the city turned into a flood of a population of about 1.3 million residents. About half of them escaped Guangzhou and sought safety in the countryside or in their ancestral villages. Incendiary bombs were used to maximum effect. And some residents and soldiers vacating Guangzhou then made sure to torch parts of the city before they left, leaving the Japanese with a much diminished infrastructure than what they were counting on. Thousands of lives were lost in this Canton operation, and who knows how many were injured. It wasn't a fair fight. And though the stories abound of valiant defenders engaging in the most heroic and selfless acts, the Chinese soldiers never stood a chance. By the end of the year, 1938, Guangzhou and most of the province was in the hands of the Japanese. Hitler wouldn't invade Poland for another year, and Pearl Harbor was still three years in the future. World War II came early to China. And I hesitate to drag Ukraine into this narrative, but just as the West is using Ukraine as a proxy to fight Russia, well, during this pre-invasion of Poland and bombing of Pearl Harbor, the West used China in a similar manner as their proxy to fight back against their soon-to-be common enemy, the Empire of Japan. So with the entire coastline of China now effectively shut down, it became almost impossible to sneak anything in for the Chinese war effort against Japan. Now more than ever, the Burma Road and flying supplies over the hump to Kunming remain the most plausible option to aid the nationalist armies. Once Guangzhou was taken, end October 1938, Japanese troops started pouring into the city. And you can imagine the terror this caused to the local residents who by then knew all about what had happened elsewhere in China and the atrocities committed by the Japanese soldiers on the local people. So the people of Guangzhou joined their fellow citizens elsewhere in China who found themselves living under Japanese occupation and you know, all that that meant. It would take till July of 1942 before American B-25 bombers could begin bringing the fight to the Japanese in southern China. Time and again, American planes would bomb Tianhe Airfield, an asset that was so important to the Japanese in Guangzhou. Then to jump ahead, starting in mid-January 1945, the USS Yorktown was close enough whereby it became easier to bomb Japanese positions in Guangzhou. And finally... On September 7, 1945, General Zhang Fakui's troops entered Guangzhou and liberated the city from its seven-year occupation by Japan. For four months, in 1944 to early 1945, Wang Jingwei's wife, Chen Bijun, ran the Chinese collaborationist government in Guangzhou. She, too, had been a longtime KMT member and had married Wang Jingwei in 1912. Chen Bijun was at her husband's side throughout that period when Wang wrote himself into the history books as a traitor to China for heading up the rival puppet government. Upon Wang's death in November 1944, 
Chun Bi Jin continued to fly the flag of this ill-fated regime. When all was lost and the Japanese began evacuating Guangzhou, she refused to leave and was promptly arrested on Jiang Kai-shek's orders. She refused to admit her guilt as a traitor to the country. When the communists took over, they found her still locked up in a Shanghai prison. They too tried to get her to admit guilt as a traitor to the Chinese people. She wouldn't give in to them either and ended up dying in prison. Zhang Fakui, the liberator of Guangzhou, he was another Hakka from Shixing County, two or three hours north of Guangzhou. He was another longtime stalwart of Sun Yat-sen, serving as his bodyguard. I wonder if he knew Two-Gun Cohen. As an officer, he fought against the warlords in the northern expedition, defeating Wu Pei-fu and Zhang Zolin's armies. He put down the communist uprising in Nanchang in August 1927, as well as the Guangzhou uprising of December 1927. He played a key role in the final months of the Civil War, serving as commander-in-chief of the Republic of China Army. The way the Civil War turned out, the Communist armies took Manchuria first, then everything north of the Yangtze. By 1949, as the People's Liberation Army forces were catching a breather on the north bank of the Yangtze, all was clearly lost for the Chiang Kai-shek regime. He had sent Li Zongren up north to Beijing to negotiate with Mao in January. Someone had to do it. We all know he was handed some very harsh terms, and Mao was showing no quarter to Jiang and the Nationalists. He was going to have his vengeance for all the bad blood that existed between the KMT and CCP going back to the early 1920s. At this point, Jiang called for the Nationalist government to move its center from Nanjing to Guangzhou. Twenty-one and a half centuries before, Zhao Tuo had made Guangzhou the capital of his Nanyue kingdom, as had Liu Yan in his southern Han dynasty in 917. Now, once again, Guangzhou served as the capital, this time of Jiang Kai-shek's fast-fading government. When acting president Li Zongren flew back to Guangzhou in April to report on the failed negotiations with Mao, the nationalists knew there was never going to be any peace with honor. The communists had paused their operations for a while while these negotiations had been going on. But all the while, they had been making logistical plans for the final battles. And you all know it ended quickly. The communists crossed the Yangtze, and Hankou was one of the first major cities to fall on May 17th. Shanghai fell on June 2nd, Changsha, August 5th, Fuzhou, August 18th, and Lanzhou out in Gansu on August 28th. As the nationalist government's future prospects began to fade to black, on September 24, 1949, Jiang had called for a Supreme Council gathering in Guangzhou. He served as the chairman and Li Zongren, his deputy. The one-time Shanxi warlord, Yan Shan was made premier. This one-time model warlord had to bid farewell to his beloved Shanxi in late April after the fall of the capital, Taiyuan. There in Guangzhou... Jiang held serious discussions with his remaining closest allies. Li Zongren later abandoned ship and by year's end fled to the U.S. Yan Shishan was made acting president of the Republic of China. In the meantime, on October 1st, Mao had his magic moment standing on the rostrum of Tiananmen and declared the founding of the People's Republic. As communist troops started closing in on Guangzhou, Jiang called for the capital to be moved again this time to Chongqing. And then on October 15, 1949, Guangzhou 
fell to the communists. Then, as the communist armies closed in on Chongqing, once again the capital was moved, this time 300 kilometers to the west in Chengdu, and there in the one-time kingdom of Shu, where Liu Bei once ruled, Jiang Kai-shek made his last stand until the bitter end came for him on December 8, 1949, when first Taipei was named as the new national capital, and then two days later on December 10th, when he left the Chinese mainland for the last time. In this series, we saw how Guangzhou historically began its history as an international city, heavily engaged in the ancient Nanhai trade, then as a major node on the Maritime Silk Road, and again in the post-Age of Exploration times, when more strangers from afar came calling at this port to trade in those goods that were China's calling card, porcelain, silk, and tea. Then, after 1757... Guangzhou became the centerpiece of the Qianlong Emperor's restrictive Canton system. But after 1842, this city that historically had enjoyed so much exclusivity as the port of choice for most of the trade going back to the Tang Dynasty, well, in the new treaty port era, it became just another place to do business. But the one thread that ran through the entirety of Guangzhou's history was its importance as an international city. After the failed 100 Days Reform, Guangzhou became ground zero for the anti-Manchu Qing movement, then the anti-Jiang Kai-shek movement, and then under the New People's Republic, for a period of time beginning in 1950, the nation's leaders looked inward, and the people of that ancient and historic city had to do what they always did in between the changes of dynasties and governments. They had to sit tight for a while and wait for their time to come when they could rise and shine once again. First of all, one of the first things the new PRC government announced to the world was that the city that everyone in the West knew as Canton was from now on to be referred to as Guangzhou. In 1950 and into 1951, those foreigners who had forced their way in were shown the door and asked to leave. And during this time in the early part of PRC history, Guangzhou was no longer the great international city it had always been. In 1957, the Canton Fair was established. You could sort of call this international trade fair a kind of modern-day Canton system. Just as Emperor Qianlong demanded all export trade be carried out exclusively in Guangzhou, the CCP as well, they only allowed China's door to open a crack. And once again... Guangzhou became the sole port of trade with foreign nations looking to purchase made-in-China goods. Twice per year, in the spring and autumn, the China Export Commodities Fair was held in the city of Guangzhou, and since 2007, it's called the China Import-Export Fair. I was a regular visitor to this trade show during the 1990s, and I first visited the Canton Fair in the 1980s. But after more than a quarter century of relative quiet, the city of Guangzhou was fated to rise again in spectacular fashion. At the third plenum of the 11th Central Committee, only a couple years after Mao's death and the conclusion of the Cultural Revolution, Deng Xiaoping's reforms were signed off on, and thus began the era of Gaika Kaifeng, reform and opening up to the world, the policy that led China to where it is today. And it was Xi Jinping's father, Xi Zhongxun, then the party secretary of Guangdong, who was the first 
to give these new economic reforms a test drive. He began in the city of Shukou in a deal with a Hong Kong conglomerate to operate a shipbreaking venture. This was in January 1979. It wasn't a bad first outing and showed Deng's plans had some merit. And this experiment in Shukou led to a proposal by the Guangdong Provincial Standing Committee in April of that fateful year of 1979 to create special economic zones in the two provinces that had, from time immemorial, served as China's busiest places of foreign trade, Guangdong and Fujian. And on August 26, 1979, the go-ahead was given to establish special economic zones in four places, Shenzhen, Zhuhai, Shantou, and Xiamen. Fourteen more would follow in 1984, Guangzhou being one of them. And these special economic zones were based in cities that experimented with the idea of offering investors and traders all kinds of preferential policies, including tax breaks, less government interference and regulation, and freedom from oversight by the central government in Beijing. Shenzhen, 140 kilometers south of Guangzhou, was the shining star of this group of SEZs. It was formally established in May of 1980. And this is where the earliest experimentation with the whole socialism with Chinese characteristics idea was carried out. To call it one of the greatest success stories in all of world history isn't an exaggeration. It wasn't much to look at when I first saw it in 1989, but today, Shenzhen is China's fourth largest city where 18 million people now live and work. This city's history, of course, went back to the Nanhai, commandery of the first Qin emperor's time. I forgot to mention, when Chen Jitang was running the show in Guangdong province in the 1930s, he established a few casinos in Shenzhen, which attracted no small number of gamblers from Hong Kong who rode up from the colony via the Kowloon-Canton Railway. All the lessons learned in Shenzhen and all the other special economic zones were later on rolled out across the country. And these policies that began with Deng Xiaoping resulted in all the eye-popping results we see today in the 2020s. The whole Pearl River Delta region truly has become an area where so many superlatives can be used to describe it. As for the city of Guangzhou today, it's the largest urban agglomeration on earth. It stretches from Foshan, Chaoqing, Jiangmen, Dongguan, Huizhou, Zhuhai, Macau, and Hong Kong. This mega-region is part of a plan in progress called the Greater Bay Area. Nine cities plus Hong Kong and Macau, a $1.7 trillion size GDP. The area is about the size of the whole state of Illinois or the nation of Croatia. But unlike Croatia's population of 4 million, about 71 million people call the Greater Bay Area home. The master plan calls for the integration of this entire Greater Bay Area to be tied in with the 21st century Maritime Silk Road. It's a massive work in progress. China's modern-day rulers, starting with, as I said, Deng Xiaoping and Xi Zhongxun, knew what emperors of early Chinese history knew. This part of China, where the Pearl River flowed, was a special place. Guangzhou had always proved its worth to the country in its traditional role as the nation's front door. And looking at Guangzhou today, anyone can conclude those leaders from the 1980s 
Got that right. And so, there you have it. Another patented CHP rush to the finish to bring down the curtain on this series where I hope you got a nice general overview of the history of the city of Guangzhou and its millennia-old importance to the Chinese nation. Thanks to everyone who made it this far. I appreciate you listening, and I hope you enjoyed this series. Onward to something new next time. Rest assured, I have a good one lined up for you. This is Laszlo Montgomery proudly signing off from the sister city of Guangzhou, yes, Los Angeles, California, and I'm inviting you, as I always do, to consider coming back again next time for another exciting episode of the China History Podcast.